This is a crazy time in American politics, and one of the things that I think will define 2021 is whether or not the U.S. government can pull off some pretty big things. And I think one of the real challenges the Biden administration is facing is how much trust there is in U.S. government. And we've had this longstanding fight over whether the American people are willing to pay for the things that many believe that government needs to do. So within this broad context of, you know, whether we can get people to trust the government again and whether people will be willing to pay for government, like, you know, trillions of dollars of stimulus. Today, so we're we're thrilled to welcome Ethan Porter, who is an assistant professor at the George Washington University School of Media and Public Affairs and author of a wonderful new book called The Consumer Citizen. So welcome, Ethan. Hey, so great to be here. Really, really happy about it. And welcome to Julia and uh, and James. I'm, of course, Lee Drutman, a uh, senior fellow at New America and Julia. Uh, I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Hi, guys. Um, so let's let's dive right in here. Um, I'm going to ask Ethan a big question, which is, you know, really the big point of his book, which, uh, as I take it, is that the kind of idealistic view of civic life that we all have is maybe not so accurate anymore. Maybe never all that accurate. So uh, I'm going to quote you, Ethan, because uh, I think you 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 write this very clearly. Open quote: Politics, as theorized from Aristotle onward, should be about issues of public concern. The consumer, in contrast, is the consummate private actor. He should be banished from the political world, the world of the public. That's according to Aristotle, I guess. However, well-intentioned, such concerns miss the present empirical reality that the citizen has already become a consumer citizen. So let's uh, break this down here. What is the consumer citizen and and what happened to transform the public citizen into the consumer citizen? And uh, also, should uh, public citizen, the organization, really change its name to consumer citizen? Because after all, Ralph Nader, who is public citizen number one, also was really a consumer rights advocate. You know, first, I'll I'll take the the last question first. Of course, I'm always on the the side of supporting uh, changes to anything Ralph Nader does. Um, So so clearly, Ralph Nader's group should change its name. Um, More seriously, uh, you know, the consumer uh, has, has, you know, typically been thought of as, as I I describe in the book, um, as, as something we should be sort of uh, view as inimical to politics, um, view as separate from politics. Uh, and I would argue that uh, the consumer for some time um, has been more important in people's everyday lives than citizenship. I don't, I don't actually know um, if there was a time when the sort of Aristotelian view of citizenship actually um, took hold for people. Um, you know, despite it still uh, affecting our views of what uh, civic action and civic life should be. Uh, what, what I've noticed in describing and talking about the book is that people are often um, disturbed by its uh, assertion that uh, consumer life has, put, has displaced citizenship. Uh, but you know, I, I view that as almost beside the point, whether or not uh, the consumer should 
be more important than the citizen is, is a different question. Uh, I think it's important to, to sort of understand that the citizen spends most of his time doing things besides engaging with civic life. And as I show in the book, what that means mostly is the citizen spends uh, his or her time shopping, uh, you know, on Amazon, at Costco, et cetera. So talk to us a little bit about what the what the implications of that are for how we think about citizenship. Now this is this is like the core of the argument. Right. Yes. Yeah, so I think this, this means a few things for citizenship. Um, it means, first of all, that we need to understand that, that that most people's relationship with politics is completely distinct from the relationship that listeners of this podcast have, uh, that uh, political scientists have, and that uh, political journalists have. Uh, most people's relationship to politics is is at a distance, you know, as Dahl put it, right? For most people, politics um, is but a sideshow in the circus of life. And so with that knowledge in mind, we should then begin to investigate, well, what is it that people do with their lives? And they, they do many things, obviously, but in reviewing time series data, uh, you know, I was struck by the amount of time people spend shopping. And People aren't just shopping at Amazon for a book, you know, such as the Consumer Citizen, right? People are also, you know, shopping for groceries. They're, they're, um, you know, going to CVS to pick something up. They're buying coffee in the morning. The book's argument is that these, that these sort of fragmentary experiences accumulate, and over over time, they instruct us in habits that we that we bring with us on those rare occasions when we engage in politics. If nothing else, the book is an argument about the importance of habit for politics. But it's not about political habits. It's about how apolitical habits, non-political habits, habits that we learn in the consumer realm can come to shape what we do when we're doing civic activities. Julia? So, I have, yeah, I have a couple of, um, of questions. I think my reaction to this kind of falls into two large umbrellas. And one is kind of like, what does this book contribute to how we're thinking about the way that people act in the political realm and kind of like so like psychological and sociological and rational choice visions of, of political behavior. I realize that covers a lot of territory. That's like all of, you know, your graduate education in political science. The other one is kind of about the, the prescriptions for um, for people in political power. So I'll let me kind of preface this because I think this really this spoke to me in interesting ways. I could see using this in the classroom. I think it would be really interesting. And it's the research you present is really compelling. The, the graphs are, are very beautiful, but I found it like really in contradiction with the two research traditions I spend most of my time with. And one is kind of the, you know, Liliana Mason social identity theory way of thinking about how people respond to politics. And the other one is, you know, my field, I guess, of, of presidential rhetoric. And so I think I'll start there. And then I want to circle back to kind of what this tells us about people in the political process and about kind of the implications for the mass electorate. But I, I saw this book as a little bit prescriptive about how government should kind of sell and present itself. And in the field of presidential rhetoric, we really emphasize civic appeals. And I was so just, you know, cards on the table, I was just lecturing my students about this on Wednesday, about how the fear itself line in FDR's inaugural, for example, and this is a speech about people's essentially about people's kind of economic behavior right about economic problems he's asking people to act in a more civic manner not panic not act in self-protection kind of think about interdependence and i wonder is this kind of 
rhetoric. This is really prized by people who study presidential rhetoric, right? It's like, how much does the president ask people to do something and ask people to think about the values of the nation? And so, like, this is really emphasized in inaugurals, which are kind of on the brain, but in other types of speeches, too. You kind of talk instead about meeting people where they are. And I, I wonder to what degree your work is kind of a prescription that we maybe ease off of the of the civic rhetoric and the civic appeals and instead present thing as like look this is this is what you're getting this is what you're putting in and you know this is this is what government does for you is that is that a fair characterization sure i i, I think it's um fair but I, I would just push i would just um part of the book's genesis occurred when it can be traced back to uh me thinking about how george w bush sold his tax plan right his, his tax cut on the subject of presidential rhetoric. And if you go back and read, as, as I was doing for the book, uh, you know, and the book was merely a dissertation idea, uh, you know, it was a glimmer in my eye, I realized that Bush was selling the tax cut as a kind of consumer deal, um, right? So, so Bush would sell his tax cut as, you know, explicitly, right? This is in, he did this repeatedly. He would say, look, the reason you should support this tax cut is because you've basically been overcharged. I mean, this is a, this is a term he uses. You've been overcharged. Uh, as a citizen, and the the tax cut, my tax plan, he said, would give you back what you're owed. Um, so I was struck by the extent to which our political leaders and our presidents, in particular, often engage in this kind of consumer rhetoric, right? So the exhortations to um, civic engagement, in one respect, those are those are kind of the exceptions, right? So even, but even FDR, of course, you know, is is making an argument um, about a deal, um, about a sort of relationship that citizens would have with their government that would resemble a relationship that, you know, you might have with a local store or a preferred company. And it turns out, you know, that presidents of both parties have used consumer rhetoric frequently. So to the extent that the uh, book is diagnostic about rhetoric, it's to sort of implore uh, government, so not merely political leaders, to recognize the primacy of consumerism. Um, and this then gets back to your first question, which is how does this book relate to social identity theory? To be abundantly clear, and I, I just want to, I can't emphasize this enough, the importance of social identity should never be diminished. Um, and and my, my book almost exists as partially a response to my own frustrations with those who are hostile to social identity theory. In some ways, my book is a response to the frustrations I've had with rational choice. When it comes to social identity in particular, I've been struck by the frequency with which um, race-based appeals often use consumer language. Um, and this, this, this sort of uh, came to me later on in the, in the book writing process. When I began to realize that, think about uh, attacks on um, welfare queens driving Cadillacs, right? These sort of race-based attacks that are about social identity, but invoke consumer language to make their point, which to me is further evidence of the way in which consumerism is almost the lingua franca of American politics. Um, so even if you're um, advancing a, a, you know, a, a set of racist arguments, you're going to rely on consumer metaphors because I, I you know, and I, you know, and I, I think that's really striking and indicates that rather than, you know, my book isn't, isn't to say that consumerism is competing with social identities and, but in some ways is, uh, um, corroborating them is being used by them. Sort of the mechanism by which they're being activated in some cases. Yeah. And certainly you talked about rhetorically too. Uh, so the language of deservingness, right? The language of deservingness that often comes up um, is expressed using terms that are familiar to us from our everyday consumer lives. 
Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna think about this uh this deal thing. I mean, this may just be some of what I'm saying may just be kind of a peccadillo of the or a particular obsession of the the rhetoric field to think about civics. I mean, we don't think about this consumer language enough because I I do sort of think that people in presidential rhetoric would would say like the fair deal, the new deal, the square deal, right? We're very into deals. I'm curious actually where the where the term deal comes from and if is that like a turn of the 20th century term, but if that's um you know, I think that like our assumption would be well that's talking about the people as a whole. Um and it's interesting your intervention there I think is sort of interesting. Do you know like is it is the idea of a deal is that like a an early um, I, I don't I don't know if that's if that's traceable back directly to consumer life in the 20th century. Um, but but uh, my, my read of, of FDR and Truman and, and others who've spoken of deals is, is often that they're appealing to people's sort of common sense understanding of the world, you know, which is, hey, you're going to have a have a reciprocal relationship with government. And I think uh, progressives and the Democratic Party sometimes has lost that, which I, which I think is an, a central argument in the book. That's interesting. If there's not a, um, I would love for you to elaborate on that and then I'll shut up and hand it back to my co-hosts also. But, um, there's a, if we can talk about another book on the podcast, like some of this, when I started really thinking about like situating this idea of the consumer, I was reminded of this book called Cheap by Ellen Rupel Shell. I don't know if any of you have ever read that, but it is, it, I mean, it's not a competitor to your book any, in any way. It's a sort of trade history of like kind of bargains but it goes into the idea of like how you start selling things as as a deal or a bargain and like how modern consumerism developed it's really fascinating book but not the one we're going to talk about so yeah I, I am curious about kind of you know what your what your critique is of of progressive rhetoric and then I'll shut up and hand it back to yeah I think this this sort of uh goes back to I think a fair bit of what you were saying too um which is I think Civic-minded people, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, um, often imagine that the consumer world and the civic world are, are at loggerheads forever and are irreconcilable. Um, but what I show in the book is that actually appealing to people through civic terms, uh, so, sorry, appealing to people through consumer terms um, can make them more trusting of government. Um, so it's, it's not the case that consumerism is inherently always opposed to the civic world, it's that actually we can sort of leverage consumerism and its lessons to make people um, come to resemble the citizens we want them to be. So I, I think Lee began by talking about the decline in, in trust in government. And um, in, in one of the book's final studies, I show that trust in government can be increased pretty substantially through a sort of an advertising intervention that I worked on with two co-authors in which we basically created an advertisement for government. We reveal the submerged state, right? Uh, you know, we emphasize those benefits that um, government provides that people might not always be aware of. And in doing so, we did increase trust in government, right? So if you're holding on to the ideal of citizenship, it might be worth thinking through the ways in which meeting people where they are as consumers can actually help us get to that ideal. Thank you, first of all, for coming on the show and the podcast. I don't know. Can we call our podcast a show? I guess so. Depends and, how well you perform. Yeah. I mean, and well, and I'm really enjoying your book, and I highly recommend at least what I've read thus far. I fully, in full disclosure, haven't made it all the way through yet, but it is a it is a fabulous book, and it really gets me thinking 
So this morning I woke up like, you know, Julia, I've spent the last couple of days you know, working through the book and I woke up with Max Weber, Karl Marx and Hannah Arendt on my mind. So thank you for that. And so I guess the, the series of questions and not all at once in this exchange, but over the course of, of our time together, I want to ask about just the, I want to better understand the phenomenon, the underlying phenomenon, and then try to understand when it occurred or necessarily why it occurred, or has it always been this way? And then the kind of consequences of it. And maybe starting with uh, with better understanding the phenomenon, I think, I mean, this is really important. I think what you're hitting on here is extraordinarily important. I think it gets to our political dysfunction today. I think it gets to the fact that we can't seem to fix government or fix our politics in any way, that everybody keeps getting less and less happy. And I think it highlights in a very important way, and speaking of different kind of uh, research agendas, it, it highlights a sameness out there that transcends the ideological polarization trope that we so often hear, that transcends the partisanship and the competition and everything else. And when you take a step back, you realize that everybody pretty much thinks about politics in the same way. And that's really important to me. And they're they're consumers, as you say, they are consumers. And this, you know, it's a proletariat of consumers. And to borrow Max Weber's uh, phrase, and that's it's really concerning to me because. And if we take, and I will say this as a conservative, I've been spending more time reading Karl Marx lately. It's fascinating, but Karl Marx really helps me to understand this moment in our politics because he is the preeminent theorist of what of labor and consumption. And when you begin to see politics as consumption and labor, essentially, to borrow Arendt's terms, you need Marx to understand it. And all of a sudden, you transform the government into a firm that produces things that citizens consume. And the public realm, the, the classical public realm that, that the framers would think about, that Aristotle and others thought about, um, that was admittedly exclusionary at times, but it's gotten bigger and more people have been welcomed in. The fundamental dynamics don't change, but that public realm has now been replaced by this idea of a national household. So the private sphere of our lives now dominates our public understanding of politics and society. Incidentally, in the irony of this whole thing, it displaces the family and our, in the way we think about things, mankind, right? I'm making air quotes right now, or the global, you know, world order, whatever you want to call it. It replaces nations and other forms of civic community and how we think about uh, the political process. And the entirety of the of of what we do as human beings is functionalized towards meeting the demands of consumers and i guess if we understand our our existence and this brings in the Hannah Arendt human condition labor and and work and action uh, distinction but if we understand it in terms of basically manufacturing goods that we consume that's what the government does then action political action is no longer about adjudicating disagreements over why and what, right? Those are important things in self-government, but, but that's not the point anymore. It's only concerned with how, the how questions. And what that does is that it transforms, in Arendt's terms, deliberation, self-government, into just reckoning with consequences. That's all we're basically doing. And the practice of self-government is basically concerned with the end product rather than the process by which it is discerned. And because products arise at the end of a 
process whereby you produce them, you fabricate them, you manufacture them. We then understand politics in terms of tools or means that we use to produce them, which means that we now think of politics in terms of means and ends. But self-government, that's that's an end in and of itself. It's not something we consume. It's not a, it's an activity. Its value is is the fact that it's an activity that we're not using it. We're not consuming it. We are participating in it. And therefore, it exists in a different realm. And so my question, and sorry to go on for so long, is that Karl Marx is the first Western theorist to grapple with the problem of universal equality. He sees it coming, and the Western tradition doesn't know how to handle it because they've always had slaves or laborers to keep people alive who could then go and participate in politics. But a big part of Arendt's argument is that and Marx as well, incidentally, is that with this new world in which everybody can be equal in the sense that they don't have to labor for others to keep them alive, that you know laboring is now easier and it's easier to stay alive, we now, it doesn't work. And they were both very, very pessimistic about the Western tradition's ability to sustain this kind of public realm and this kind of sense of politics is something in which we participate to make decisions as equals. And once everybody is welcomed into it, I'm not sure I agree. In fact, I know I don't agree with that. I think that we can. But your book and the arguments that you make in a very concrete way, I think, illustrate the challenges that are associated with that. And so I was just, it's not even so much a question as just like, what do you think about this? I mean, and just unpack this for me and help me understand Am I am I on the wrong track? Am I on the right track? And if and if and should I be happy or sad? Well, uh, I wish I, I wish I could give you one answer to that question, um, but I, I think the answer is is both. I'm so glad you brought up a rent because it is as as I, as I think you must have surmised the human condition is uh, animating a fair bit of the book's theoretical apparatus. In the human condition, uh, a rent, as I think you know, rightly or not wrongly, bemoans the, the sort of agora. Of classical of the classical world is, is no more. Um, that citizens are too uh, uh, committed to their own sort of uh, laboring, their own sort of minute day to day activities to focus on issues of public concern. This is sort of a rents criticism of political life and the human condition. In the consumer citizen, in my book, I'm pushing back against that and saying that we don't have to view these two in opposition. Um, that uh, first of all. It doesn't do anything for anybody just to sort of bemoan the loss of a of a former world that is, you know, uh, unsalvageable. Um, and second of all, we can uh, use the tools of our world now, of our consumer world, to begin to inch back toward the ideal world of the consumer. Um, we can encourage political action and civic engagement by appealing to people as consumers. So we can sort of rebuild some of what was good of, of that sort of classical notion of citizenship by appealing to people's, you know, everyday um, civic, uh, everyday consumer um, uh, frameworks. In terms of the history of this, I think it's a great question. I'm, I'm not a historian. Um, my, my read has been as follows, that, you know, if you, if you simply, as, as, I, as I talk about a little bit in the last chapter of the book, um, you can see over the 20th century, the, the uses of the word uh, consumer dramatically exceeding uses of the word citizen or civic. Um, you know, if, if you sort of analyze the corpus on Google Books, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, over the 20th century, 
in our spoken language. We just began to refer to consumerism far more than we did to citizenship. Uh, Elizabeth Cohen has written a fantastic book. She's a historian uh, called Consumers Republic. And uh, Cohen traces uh, the rise of consumerism in American life to the end of World War II, uh, right. where the prosperity, it's yeah, the prosperity brought on from World War II unleashed uh, shopping malls and town centers that, you know, in, in, in gave everyone that, that everyone had access to in, in short order. But you can even trace it back further, right? If you, if you go back to the, the Revolutionary War period, um, there are historians who have, I think, made a compelling case that consumer life gave the colonists something to unify around. Um, you know, even though they were, you know, had very different perspectives, they could unify around consumer concerns. Um, so the consumer has always been important uh, in American politics. I think it's become more important probably over the last 80 to 100 years in, in the post-war period. Does that does that help explain some things? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I and, and I'm going to turn it back over to Lee, and we'll come back. I want to go back to the the founding and the next round if we have time. But I do want to underscore. I think yeah, it really takes off. I think you're right. The aftermath of the of World War II, when all of a sudden like making a living becomes the like be all and end all, and people are freed because of the, the kind of changes in society from this kind of daily grind and struggle. And it doesn't mean everybody's happy and everybody's great, but it's for by and large. But the difference, and I think this is what Arendt really emphasizes, is that they're not using their freedom to engage in these higher activities that give our lives meaning. And that sounds very elitist, I admit, um, but they're they're consuming. And then and they just consume. And then essentially that that desire to consume or not even desire, it's a necessity or, or a need, ultimately per- percolates and then goes throughout the entire um, the entire society. And, and essentially now everybody consumes. They consume politics. They consume culture. They consume, um, they consume you know, medicine and every, I mean, just literally anything. And, and it's, I think this is one of the most important things that we haven't fully grappled with. And there's so much there to unpack. And I'm not even sure I, I mean, I definitely don't understand it all. Um, but I think this is really underlying a lot of the the good and the bad of, of the world today. And I think we should do better at trying to understand it. And I commend you for writing a book about it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the kind words. And the, the last thing I'll just say on this point is that you're absolutely right to use the word elitist, I think. I do think there's an elitist view of democracy, which uh, presupposes that citizens have to be as engaged as we're uh, the ancient Greeks, and then becomes disgruntled and upset when when they're not. My book is is meant to be a counterweight to that view and say that actually we can get people to be more trusting of government, more supportive and interested in sort of civic activity if um, we are, uh, approach them as they are, not just decry where, where, that they're not where we want them to be. I guess what I wanted to ask you about was about this moment in particular, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure when you kind of turned in your final edits on this book, but I've been thinking a lot about the fact that we seem to have been having a bit of like a civic moment, kind of over the past four years, but definitely over the past year, in which like the pressing concerns of public health have kind of have illustrated our kind of interdependence in a way that can't be totally shoehorned into um, an individualist kind of um, consumer reciprocity framework. And again, maybe I'm thinking about that wrong, because I think I am kind of thinking about these of consumerism and citizenship as being in different buckets. And clearly that's that's what you're trying to push back against. So maybe I'm just not quite thinking about it right. But that was one of my reactions. It also seems like 
we've had this moment, and this gets to your question about kind of how do we get people more civically engaged and ultimately to hold elected officials accountable. It, but it does seem to me that we are at this moment where we've realized that, or a lot of people have realized, that you can't take for granted governmental accountability and you can't take for granted governmental functionality you can't take for granted peaceful transfers of power we were going to get there somehow right so i was going to find a way um but right like we can't take that stuff for granted and being more active in that in that realm in a more kind of direct way and i guess i wonder you know if if the consumer citizen thesis can speak to that moment but also like on the flip side of that one thing that i noticed over the summer with the the black lives matter uprisings was that it, it there was like this very strong consumer like literal consumerism to that where you know part of it was like buying products from black businesses and like buying products to show how engaged you were i think in full disclosure i think i'm actually wearing a 414 justice shirt which was like the milwaukee black lives matter one of the consumer products you could buy at that point so i'm not in any way not part of this but i i'm curious like how your book maybe speaks to this specific civic moment where we're realizing that we can't take that that machinery for granted, but also where consumerism is part of the response? Sure. I think great questions. Um, Full disclosure, I I began writing the book under Obama, um, and then uh, Trump is elected. And in some ways, Trump's election, in my mind, uh, was the culmination. It was the triumph of consumer citizenship. And, you know, I was not not happy. I want to be very clear about this. I was deeply disturbed um, and, and upset and outraged and all the other all the other words. But Donald Trump is a guy who sold stakes and, you know, then eventually sold his presidency. Uh, so the power of, of consumer citizenship is, you know, uh, the power of the consumer in our politics, I think, was it was at a high watermark. Um, whether or not it's dissipated since, um, I don't know. But in terms of the questions about like people buying goods to express political preferences, you know, I do that too. Um, but I think most people, my book contends sort of do the opposite, right? That they're buying so much and paying so little attention to politics that their sort of consumer habits come to shape their politics, uh, right? So usually in political science, we focus on, okay, do Democrats and Republicans behave differently as consumers when their candidates win or lose? And I'm saying that's it. that's really interesting, but I reverse it, right? I say, well, what if the independent variable, so to speak, is people's consumer life, and you know, constituted, you know, represented by people's consumer experiences? Um, and that's when I think you can begin to um, realize that the distinction between consumerism and citizenship is not as sharp as um, we might assume. So, fairness is a major, major concept for consumers. Um, that blows apart some of the assumptions that consumers are always individuals, you know, ma- you know sort of individuals maximizing their own individual gain. Um, you know, studies of, of consumer fairness have shown that uh, people are, are quite willing to part with their own money and, and happy to do so if they believe that a company is pricing a good fairly. Um, they become very displeased if they believe the company is pricing a good unfairly. So it's not as if consumers always want to maximize their own interests at the expense of everyone else. There's a sense of reciprocity that matters for consumers that companies are really good at, you know, really good at responding to. Um, companies um, know they want to know they want companies know that they benefit when consumers perceive them to be fair. Government, unfortunately, doesn't seem to know that. Government is disinterested in promoting itself as as being a a, a, a sort of 
a fair deal maker, which is unfortunate because um, as the evidence on the submerged state shows and government provides people a lot of benefits that they just don't know about. And part of the consumer citizen argument is that because they don't know about those benefits and because they have a sort of consumer mentality, they become really frustrated with government and want to punish it as they would an unfair company. So government, it's, it's, it would behoove government to realize that and promote itself in ways that make clear that, no, you're actually getting a, a decent deal, or at least not as bad a deal as you might think. So I want to pick up on that point of government promoting itself. So I think you know it, it's clear that government does a very bad job of promoting its services and being transparent and clear about the costs and, and benefits and the quote-unquote deal that taxpayers are getting. And, you know, this is very convincing. The, the, the book does a great job of um, explaining why that would uh, be a, a good strategy for government to do. So this raises an obvious question, which is like, why hasn't the U.S. government done this? Uh, also, do other governments do this better than the U.S.? So one one hypothesis is that uh, politicians haven't read your book, and uh, you know now that now that your book is out, uh, people in government can read your book and and adjust. Another theory is that limited government conservatives have basically done a, a very good job of selling government as inefficient. And so it's just been very hard politically for uh, people who believe in government to sell government as a, as a good deal because there's, you know, there's a problem of partisanship, problem of messaging. I mean, you, you've also written an excellent book about uh, combating disinformation and how hard it is. So is it just a matter of messaging? And, you know, so why isn't government doing it and should it and how can it do it more? But, you know, on the flip side, and we, you know, we talk about Trump as as the sort of apotheosis of the consumer citizen candidate. And when Trump became president, I, I worried a lot that uh, he was actually going to be a very popular president because he understood the uh, salesmanship of, of government. Uh, and one book that I was thinking a lot about when, when he became president was uh, Murray Edelman's classic, The Symbolic Uses of Politics, which uh, takeaway of that book is largely that clear symbolic actions are often more important than results. And Edelman has a, has a similar uh, quote to the Dahl quote, which is that politics is for most of us a passing parade of abstract uh, symbols. And, you know, basically the idea was that, uh, you know, politicians would be successful by taking actions, by selling those actions. And then, you know, so the, you know, you start to worry that government propaganda, because government has so many resources, uh, you know, could actually mislead citizens. Uh, it's not just selling uh, government services as a good bargain, but, you know, selling government services as the best. Uh, I mean, there's certainly a, a good deal of propaganda uh, in, in the New Deal. Uh, now, I mean, I would argue that that was propaganda for good, but, you know, it, it can also be used for bad. So, you know, I mean, uh, I guess I, I've put a lot on the table here. And let me just add, add another another point, which is to the, to the question that whether people feel that government isn't 
isn't a good deal is because you know most of what people see about what government does is nothing happens. There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of bickering. There's all kinds of accusations of people using government for corrupt purposes. Um, so is the problem just that government doesn't do anything as well? Why doesn't government sell itself better? Should government sell itself better? What are the caveats? No, this is this is awesome. Um, so I would say. Yes, government should promote itself more. Why doesn't it promote itself more and, and more effectively? Um, I think part of it, part of the answer is probably fears of propaganda, um, which is, I guess, ironic because to some extent, governments in the United States at all levels n- normalize uh, some propaganda, right? So think of Franken privileges, communications benefits that go to incumbents to speak to their constituents already exist in, in some ways quite substantially. What I'm advocating for and what the consumer citizen implies is that uh, it's not politicians who should take the lead in advertising government, but it's really the bureaucrats, the civil servants who should take the lead in just simply describing um, and communicating what it is they do to the mass public. That is not done in this country at the federal level. Um, my impression is that, that it is done elsewhere. Canada, right? I mean, there's a, you know, it's a worthwhile Canadian initiative. Um, to, uh, uh, you know, in terms of what Canada does, they do promote themselves a little bit more. Why doesn't the U.S. government do it better? I think part of it is um, elites have bought into the argument that government is uh, woefully inefficient and will always be considered a bad messenger. Um, Again, I think people don't like politicians. I'm not convinced people uh, don't like uh, bureaucrats, civil servants, or um, government benefits, um, especially when those benefits, as I emphasize, um, are the byproduct of, of costs that they've paid. Um, you know, usually there's this sort of this almost this false dichotomy where liberals will say, you know, we should emphasize the benefits government provides, and conservatives will say, no, we should emphasize the cost that government extracts. But in, in reality, of course, government does both. Government both extracts costs and um, provides benefits, um, and in, in several of the experiments described in the book, I found that communicating that combination, the, the, the sort of alignability between costs and benefits um, can work reasonably well at um, getting people to, to sort of like or appreciate government more. I think because uh, that combination resembles the combination people have when they're at a store. They're like, okay, well, I paid for something. Now I want to get something back. To the extent government can communicate to people that that's what it does, that it both provides and takes. I actually think government would be better for it. Yeah. So the more that I, the, you know, it's a great question. The more that I think about it, I think it's because liberals and conservatives both buy into this sort of one-sided approach when, when the book argues and has lots of evidence to show that actually it's both, both sides can make a difference on people's views. Um, and again, totally share concerns about propaganda, but like to me, then the, the response to that is, well, then let's like sever the tie between government promotion and politicians seeking or uh, running for re- seeking office or running for re-election. You know, the kinds of promotion I'm talking about, you know, should focus on the nuts and bolts of, you know, government activity. Um, this, you know, the slow boring of hard boards, as as Weber would put it. That's the kind of thing government can promote. Yeah, let me let me just pick up on that point. Um, and just, I, I mean, I, I think that's such an important point that conservatives promote the costs, liberals promote the benefits, but nobody talks about the 
alignability of costs and benefits. And I've been thinking about this in terms of you know an argument that I've been making for a long time, which is about congressional capacity. That you know Congress should pay more to hire more and higher quality and more experienced staff in order to produce better policy. And the reason why that hasn't happened is because politicians are afraid that if they spend more on Congress, then their constituents will somehow boot them out. And in a way, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you know if you have all these politicians who say, oh, government just you know, is inefficient, it wastes your money, and I'm here to clean it up, uh, but I, I'm going to bash the institution, it becomes very hard to generate support for the institution. Uh, so I think the idea that politicians buy into the fact that, oh, you know, we, we, we shouldn't sell what government does because that would be propaganda, it creates a, a fundamental distrust in government and then makes it harder for them to actually sell government. That I mean, political leadership matters. And in this case, there's a, a sense of, of cravenness. It just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. I, you know, I, I think that the, the one thing that I've been struck by and was struck by while working on the book was how much people loathe political processes. Um, and political processes understood here as um, sort of the ordinary work that uh, elected officials do. People don't like elected officials. And one of the studies described in the book, um, as I already said, one of the studies, we sort of concocted an advertisement for government, um, emphasizing the services of government and benefits that government provides that are often neglected. And that advertisement uh, caused a sharp uptick um, in trust in government. In another study, um, I created an advertisement almost for Congress um, where I, I emphasize the sweat equity that ordinary Congress members put into their job, right? I'm, I'm sure everyone knows Congress members you know, don't have a glamorous job, but they work crazy hours. Um, and it turns out that when you, um, em so in the consumer world, when you emphasize um, the amount of work that an employee does or the amount of effort that's gone into making a product, uh, consumers respond positively. But when you tell Americans that, their Congress members are working really hard. Um, it has the opposite effect. People get really annoyed. They become more frustrated and distaste, distrustful of government itself. So I, I think it sort of it might be incumbent upon people who are um, interested in promoting government to almost sever um, government services and benefits from political processes. This is a point that has been made before me, um, but it's a point that I would just underline too that. I think a lot of what people pick up when I talk about when we find survey evidence that people don't like government is actually they don't like politicians to engage in political processes. Um, and that's what I've picked up on as well. Let's go back to the beginning, or at least the founding. Because I agree with you that I think that a lot of this has overlapped throughout our history, that these things have coexisted. But there clearly seems to be a break. I mean, you know, Madison loses his first election because he doesn't buy a bunch of booze and give it to the voters, right? This is not exactly a virtuous view of the electorate, right? I mean, it's like, you know, Madison's like, well, that's not right. And we need to have this high, you know, no, it doesn't work. But at the same time, if we think about the revolution, they're not throwing tea in the water in Boston because the taxes are high. The taxes are actually lower. 
they're throwing tea in the water because somebody else was the was was participating in a process that would then tax them. You know, the English are sitting there scratching their heads. Maybe they're more consumer than we are saying, well, but this is to help pay for, going back to the Stamp Act, all of these things that we've given you and helped you with over the years in terms of the Indians and the French and everybody else. And Americans are saying, we are the ones who decide that, not you, period, end of story. The Declaratory Act sends them over the edge. They repeal the Stamp Act. They pass the Declaratory Act. The declar- and by they, I mean the Parliament. Declaratory Act says, yeah, we were just repealed this tax, but we are saying we have the right to tax you. And so there's a different, you know, when you think of like John Adams saying that it's action, not rest, that constitutes our pleasure, or the fact that the revolution occurs in the minds of people well before the actual war, and it's a revolution and the processes of government of participating as equals in this kind of public realm. This is how Americans make decisions. If you think about the committees of safety that James Madison served on and many others, you know, if we had a problem, we formed a committee, we all participated in it. And then, yeah, maybe we would go break down somebody's door, tar and feather them for having some book in their house. Right. But the bottom line is there was a, it was, it's like this, it's this political in a very classical sense approach to things. And that, is not the way we think about it today. And I'm, and I guess I'm, what I'm, what I'm struggling with is, you know, and there's never any clean break point. I get that. And I think a lot of this has to do with the rise of the idea of history and progress in the 19th century. I think it has to do with, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff that is happening here, but we don't, we would see that conservatism and liberalism in our current discourse are two sides of the same coin. If we had a public realm where they were forced to contend with one another and individuals were acknowledged to be individuals as opposed to public opinion. And you begin to let that diversity percolate to the top. And so I guess my question is like, what, I mean, when do you, can you speak a little bit more to either when the predominant shift towards this way of thinking occurred? And then maybe also what was it mainly a theoretical impetus or was it a material impetus or what, what's behind all of this? Sure. Yeah, I can speak a bit to this. Um, so what I take away from, from your comments is that American politics is often almost vacillated between the ordinary and the extraordinary. The extraordinary being great normative theorizing that informs the revolution, informs the subsequent 225 odd years of American political life. But there's also the ordinary, uh, the everyday way in which um, we interact with each other, um, the way in which we interact with their politicians and the way that politicians interact with us. I, I think that some of what you're picking up on, maybe this also goes back to Lee's point about Ralph Nader is um, since the post-war, since World War II, there have been um, calls for consumer action on both sides um, that, that both sides of the aisle have made. We saw this just this week uh, when Ted Cruz and AOC banded together Right, you know, however briefly, in opposition to the sense that you know consumers who were using uh, Robinhood were were being screwed over. Um, there's a way in which concerns about consumerism transcend ideological divisions. This is, you know, Kennedy was as adamant about consumer uh, um, well-being as as, as as some of his opponents. But your broader question, I think, is about when did this uh, the ordinariness almost come to displace? Uh, the extraordinary aspects of our politics. Um, And I guess I would just circle back and say, in reality, they've always been working hand in hand. So if you look at uh, 
the Tea Party, you look at the Revolutionary War. Yes, there were people, you know, involved in leading it who had grand ideas that were essential to the the war's success. Um, but you know, I was I've been persuaded by uh, a few different historians that you know, for the sort of average member of colonial era America, um, you could relate to people's you know your other people far away you know who didn't live in the same colony as you because like you they were experiencing kind of um unfair consumer practices um and to some extent there's really interesting stuff on this that that consumer practices were communicated among the colonies in ways that you know through newspapers and newsletters in ways that actually helped unify them um so among the masses i would say among you know the mass public consumerism has often been the lingua franca of politics, at least in this country. Um, but as as you also alluded to, I don't think consumer citizenship is a uniquely American phenomenon, though perhaps it's a distinctly American phenomenon. I think, you know, in the book, I present evidence that it also has meaning apparently in the United Kingdom in ways that are worth thinking about. Its broadest level, consumer citizenship may be an endpoint of living in a prosperous post-industrial society where we have many resources to buy things to amuse ourselves with. Um, in fact, we have so many resources and we can buy so many things to amuse ourselves with that we don't have to spend as much time on politics. Um, and by we, again, I, I don't mean the people on this call. I mean, you know, people who are on this podcast, sorry. I mean, people who are, you know, only peripherally interested in politics have a lot of other fun things to do, including finding a really good deal on Amazon, which, you know, I agree is super fun. Julia? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I've sort of asked the things that that I wanted to ask um, if we want to wrap up. But I just wanted to kind of finish by saying that this was this was a really thought provoking book and conversation. And I'm still sort of thinking about Lee's point about um, about propaganda as well. And just kind of about, you know, how this how this all maps onto what we how we typically understand how people do politics. So thank you for joining us. I have one one kind of final question for you, Ethan, which is to, to think about this in terms of how we think about civic participation. Uh, now, I think there's a lot of folks who you know would argue that we ought to expand civic participation in the U.S. and politics is too elite. There ought to be more opportunities. Um, more people ought to vote, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, you know, I think one of the things that I take away from your book is that, you know, the more you get away from the types of people who typically participate in politics, the more you are expanding into the kind of low information, more consumer oriented citizen. And one argument would be, well, that, that which, as I think you kind of make in the book is, well, like, let's just accept that that's just how how things are. And we should just tailor politics a little bit more towards consumer citizenship. I mean, a pushback to that might be, well, look, that, that may all be the case, but we still need to keep in mind something about the public good. And, you know, the more we move towards a consumer citizenship model, the more we lose the capacity to think about, you know, things that are beyond the place of the market, right? You know, there are certainly a lot of issues of, of justice and fairness that are not 
like government services that you can put a put a price on. So how how should we think about the the value of expanding civic participation if it means that politics becomes more about costs and benefits, or or is that a, a false dichotomy? Uh, you know, it's funny. I usually don't like the term false dichotomy, but I find myself thinking about it a lot during this podcast. Um, All dichotomies are false, according to Derrida. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, no, this is, this is great. Um, so at the end of The Consumer Citizen, I sort of wrestle with this, right? Which is like, what does this mean for civic education and civic knowledge? And the answer I, 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 I offer is that I'm someone who cares deeply about civic education and knowledge. And I think The Consumer Citizen suggests that we shouldn't restrict our efforts um, to, in civic education to the public schools, uh, right? So this is often, you know, the history of civic education, civic debate over, you know, debate over civic education is often about what we should require of high schoolers to know, or what we should require public university students to know. But the consumer citizen says, well, actually, let's go meet people where they are and connect them to civic life where they are. So that, you know, in a, in a pre-COVID world, that means, you know, maybe a post-COVID world, that means going to Costco and instead of, you know, only getting uh, like, uh, you know, samples of like smoothies, uh, you, you might also have a booth that's giving you some information or knowledge about what the, what your local government or what your state or federal government are doing, um, right? So go there to the places where people gather on the internet as well, right? So Amazon does a lot of work with its smile initiative, right? To try and get people to buy things, um, in, in, in the process, get them to donate to charity. You could also imagine Amazon and similar internet vendors offering customers the chance to connect to their representatives in virtual town halls that have been shown to be really powerful and meaningful. So you you know, imagine checking out an Amazon. You you're like, hey, do you want to join a do you want to join a town hall where maybe you talk to your fellow citizens, maybe you talk to your congress member, state senator. You know, it seems doable. Um, so consumers. Ultimately, we're all consumers in a way that we're not all high school students. Um, so civic education can take place in our consumer domains. Now, does that mean that sometimes uh, the, the content of that education might be biased toward um, costs and benefits discussions? I mean, uh, gosh, I hope not. It's possible. Um, but I, I think first things first would be just like have civic education everywhere and have it be in places where people actually gather, which again, tends to be, people do things, people shop a lot, and we should uh, we should sort of respond to that uh, basic fact. You could tell people where their sales tax are, are going, and, and also about the, the special tax breaks that Costco got to build a store, so. You can imagine all kinds of things, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. people, you could actually impart real knowledge to people yes. in ways that might matter to them. I mean, rather than, you know, it's like, oh, you have to take, you know, should we require civics classes of 11th graders? Sure. But also we could just tell lots of people civic things all the time. Well, right. I mean, because it's about practice. Sure. You know, you can tell, teach, teach people something in school and then they forget it. So that that's all, it's all really interesting, obviously, or else we wouldn't have had you on the show. Um, so the, the consumer citizen, that's a good deal. People are going to get a, a fair bargain when they, they buy that. They'll, they'll get a great deal. Um, many, many years of work have gone into this. Um, you know, I so. say the book began eight years ago, but in reality, it's the funny thing is Elizabeth Cohen, the historian of Consumers Republic, in her preface, writes about growing up in northern New Jersey where there are many malls. 
I also grew up in northern New Jersey. Um, so I feel like I've been working on this book my whole life. And it's only like 25 bucks on Amazon or something. So wow. It's wow. A great that, that, yeah. that, that is a true, that's a true bargain. Well, thank you for, for coming on the podcast, Ethan. And you've given us all a lot to think about. So this has been another episode of Politics in Question. And we'll look forward to having another conversation in another week. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.